If you have your Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're going to read verses uh, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. To this point, uh, Mark has introduced a series of five, what you would call, conflicts with the religious leaders of his day. He, he healed a paralytic, and he displayed his power to forgive sins, and that made them angry. He had lunch with Levi. He shows himself to be a friend of sinners, and that makes them angry. Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus' followers weren't fasting, and so Jesus says, well, it's because uh, I'm the king, and the king is present. The, the bridegroom is here, and so it's actually cause for rejoicing, not sorrow. Today we come to the last of these two, uh, last of these five conflicts. It's two of them, and the backdrop is the Sabbath. But you'll notice as we read in the text, the real issue is actually Jesus, uh, who he is. And his authority. And so we begin at chapter 2, verse 23, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 6. We remind you that the Bible is God's word written, it's the only infallible rule for faith and practice. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of uh, Abiathar, I can never say that, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with him, was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us the ears to hear it very clearly. That you would give us the eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask that you would use a a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. Father, give us the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. We pray this in his name. Amen. I wonder if you think about your own life and you say, you know, mine is really a life of deep soul peace. Deep soul rest. The Christian gospel is the opposite of religion, and it's the opposite of irreligion. It's been said that the world believes generally in two approaches to life. On one hand, you've got moral conformity. Uh, That is, I'm going to live a very good life. I'll try very hard to be good. Um, And if I'm good, or at least at some level better than others, then surely God would have to be obligated to take me to heaven when I die. That's really the essence, the substance of the religions of the world. 
And the other approach is self-discovery. That is, I get to decide what is right and wrong for me. In other words, nobody tells me what to do. That's essentially the substance of irreligion. And the Bible says that, that both of those are ways of trying to be your own Savior, trying to be your own Lord. One is religion, one is irreligion, but really they're both counter to the Christian gospel. And there's some irony in, the, in these two camps, actually, because both of them are prone to a form of self-righteousness. Both of them are prone to a form of Phariseeism. Here's what that looks like. In the religions of the world, the laws of those religions are basically meant to, to build you up, to, to show you, well, you really are doing fairly well. In fact, most of the world religions are designed to give you the sense that by your well-doing, you really are better than others. It's perfect for Pharisees. Well, those who are in the camp of irreligion, those who say, no, I'm going to figure it out on my own, they look at those who are religious and they go, oh, they're a bunch of Pharisees. But of course, by pointing to those who are Pharisees, they're putting themselves, oh, can you believe what the religious people are like? In fact, they, they have another kind of looking down on other people. Now, why in the world do I begin a sermon about the Lord of the Sabbath with that? Because it's precisely where the text ends today. In fact, at the end of the passage, organized religion joins hands with irreligion. And they do that because they both hate Jesus. The, the religious hate him because he says, I'm the Savior. That he's got a righteousness that, that, that none of the rest of us have. And he's willing to give it. And the other hate him because he says, no, I'm also the Lord. In other words, I have the right to reign not only over my people, but over the entire cosmos. As followers of Christ... Those who cling not to religion, not to irreligion, we, we cling to the Christian gospel. But you and I must know that those ways of doing life are not simply philosophies that exist out there in the world. They are constant threats in your own heart and in mine. Both are actually really tempting in the South. The Pharisee Christian would say, well, yes, I, I belong to Jesus Christ. And then I add certain rules to my regiment. And by adding those rules, well, I'm a little bit better Christian than somebody else. And then, of course, the irreligious, the licentious Christian, he just tries to sow Jesus over top of his old life. I have no intention of changing who I used to be, no intention of letting go of sin, no intention of listening to any conviction from the Holy Spirit, no intention to respond to it. In fact, I'm the head of my own life, and I get to decide, but I will also call myself a Christian, as if it has no implications at all. Here's the other subtle danger. There's something in us that says, okay, I am either a Pharisee or I am licentious. But in fact, the danger is this. None of us is one or the other all the time. Or rather, you may be a Pharisee in one area of your life. You may be prone to licentious living, irreligion in another area of your life. But both temptations, which are common to any believer... There's always one cure, and that cure is to, to, to understand and rightly live in light of the gospel. And so here Mark says that you and I are to rest in the Christ of finished work. That's what our sermon is about. And so we're going to break the text down into three points. you got Sabbath principle, Sabbath point, and then secondly, hard hearts, healed hands, and then thirdly, religion or redeemer. 
And so we begin with Sabbath principle, Sabbath point. The the account begins in verse 23 where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field and they're somewhere on their way to somewhere else, no doubt. And so his disciples reach down in the grain field and they they basically pull off a few pieces of grain. It's something like a a quick snack as they're walking. You and I would equate it to, to stopping by a pretty pecan tree, picking up some awesome rich pecans in October, cracking them and just throwing them in for a bite to eat. Well, all of that in in the law of Moses is completely legitimate. Deuteronomy 23 says a person is allowed to pluck some grains from his neighbor's field as he walks past. He's not allowed to take out a sickle and start harvesting. That would be stealing from his neighbor. That, That would be inappropriate. But the reason the Pharisees have a problem with this is not because they think that these disciples are stealing from somebody else, but because they have created 39 additional rules to go on top of the Sabbath. And they've said, these are the 39 things that you must avoid in order to keep the Sabbath. The third on their list is you shall not reap grain. And so they make this massive presumption. Well, by grabbing a handful of grain, They're breaking the Sabbath. As if plucking a few kernels of grain is the same as summoning the John Deere combine. All right, let's go ahead and harvest the grain, boys. But the Pharisees get a hold of the Sabbath and they do what they always do with God's law. They twist it into something that is no longer a blessing at all. But let me be very clear. Before they got a hold of the Sabbath, before they started adding to it, all the way back in creation, there's a Sabbath principle that was meant to make a larger Sabbath point. And so back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, God the creator establishes a regular rhythm to the day. Not only is it 24 hours, not only is there morning and evening, but every seventh day there is a rest for God's people. In fact, everything in the creation was meant to be good, but it was also meant to be for our good. The apple is good. It's also meant for our good, for our nourishment, but so are the cherries and the grapes and the peaches and the Sabbath. You see what we often do, what the Pharisees did is they said, no, no, this is a good gift. But if we're gonna, really going to enjoy the gift, then we really have to, to work it. We really have to grab it and, and take hold of it, and, and they miss the Sabbath point. The Lord is simply saying, rest is good. And the nature of this law always tells us something about the law giver. And this is not a hard-driving slave master. From the, from the very fabric of creation, the Lord says, I'm a Lord, a God who wants you to have the opportunity and the privilege to rest. The Lord loves you, and as your creator, he knows better than you know what you need. Rest in mind and body, and just as importantly, in your soul. So look at Jesus' answer, verse 25. All right, let me say this real quickly, because I keep struggling with the name Abiathar. It's because I've read it 10 different ways this week. I've heard it 10 different ways. So I just said it correctly right there. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Look, to to people who have spent their entire lives reading the scroll, this is actually comical. Jesus says, hey, 
y'all ever read the Bible? And in fact, what he's saying is, is not have you ever read, but in fact, have you ever really understood the spirit of what God's word says? And he uses this by way of example, David to his men, Jesus to his disciples. And he, and he says, God didn't condemn David for this action of violating the law because every law was always meant to be a blessing to my people and God would never have wanted his anointed king to die of starvation just so the priest could eat the stale bread. Jesus says the reason you always go beyond the correct application of the Sabbath law is because you've missed the heart of God from the very beginning. Then immediately... Jesus brings together the Sabbath principle and the Sabbath point. Look at verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was meant by God. It was instituted by God for the benefit of his people, for the benefit of all people. And it was always meant to free us, not to ensnare us with some petty rules. The Sabbath principle was meant to make this Sabbath point. This is a Lord who is a rest-giving God. If you know anything about the heart of God, you would never add additional burdens. You would want my people to enjoy the blessing of the rest that God gives. One deceased Dutch scholar says the Sabbath was to keep mankind healthy, to make him happy, and in fact, it, would, it was meant to offer and foster his holiness as he would have a day to meditate on the, the works and the majesty of his maker, to delight himself in the Lord, as Isaiah 58 says. And in fact, even from that place, to look forward with a kind of anticipation to the true Sabbath that remains ahead for God's people, Hebrews 4, 9. And yet, even if you agree with this in concept, you struggle to believe it in practice. There is a religious response, and there is an irreligious response, and both of them will miss the heart of God, and both of them will miss the gospel if you're not careful. And so the religious person, the religious Christian in our context, would say, well, I've got the heart of God figured out. I do this on the Sabbath. I don't do this on the Sabbath. I do avoid this. I will not avoid that. But then more pressing is, now that I have the heart of God figured out, I now have the privilege of figuring out how I can appropriately judge the rest of you who do not know the heart of God as well as I do. And then, of course, the irreligious Christian in our context. Well, you know, I've got a really hard major. And so I go to church the early service because then I can get a full seven or eight hours worth of work in that afternoon. In fact, it would be kind of cool if they didn't have church where I go. Then I could get even more time to study. I mean, if I don't take that time to study, how am I ever going to be ready for this upcoming week? And there's another irreligious way to handle it. Well, you know, I really have a very sophisticated view of the Sabbath. It's a, it's a view that the pastor doesn't have. It's a view that no one in all of church history has ever had. You see, of course, don't you, that the religious Christian will reconstruct God's good gifts as a way not only to bind his own conscience, but to be able to judge other people for not having a bound conscience the way theirs is bound. And the 
irreligious Christian would, would deconstruct God's good gifts because they presume that God's good gifts, that well, they're always burdensome and, and I got to do something to make them work. I'll just dismantle them altogether. And so it's into both of those tendencies that Jesus says, verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of, us, of the Sabbath, which is a declaration of authority and it's a declaration of deity. Dick Lucas uh, preached at St. Helen's Bishopgate in London for a number of years. I think he's still alive. He's 98 years old, uh, if my calculations are correct. But this is what he said concerning this passage. He said that essentially what Jesus is saying is that the Sabbath is now under new management completely. And it is as though the Lord Jesus reaches into the Old Testament out of the hands of the coldly religious And he picks the Sabbath up from its creation cradle. And he says, I will decide how my people will use this day, how my followers will be blessed in the future. And as Lord of the Sabbath, this is the very first thing that he did. Jesus changed the day that his people worship from the seventh day to the first day of the week at his resurrection. But why could Jesus do that? Why did his apostles know that that's what he was doing? Because Jesus takes this Sabbath principle, which is established in Genesis 1 and 2, and he makes a profoundly Christ-centered Sabbath point. So that the Sabbath isn't a, a, a law on the books for you and I to tinker with in a religious way or an irreligious way. But rather, says Jesus, I want this to be a blessing that permeates and reshapes your whole life. Here's what I mean. Take it all the way back to creation and ask this question, why did God rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? Is it physically exhausting for the infinite God of the universe to speak into creation the whole cosmos? I've talked six days in a row. I'm worn out. No. Was it so that you and I would get the example and go, well, I'm going to get tired and, and God must have gotten tired. I'll rest. No. Genesis 1.31 gives us a clue into what's going on. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. You see, friends, the Lord rested on the Sabbath day because he was completely satisfied with his finished work. So satisfied that he could leave it alone. Because it was so perfect that he could walk away from it and be totally happy with it. How many of you can never rest from your work? Because at some deep level, you're almost never really satisfied. You're almost never really sure that it was enough, that it was sufficient, that it's finished. Some of you feel this haunting sense that your work really never is finished. The word Sabbath in Hebrew means to rest to cease. 
And it is very near to the word shalom. Shalom means peace. But it is peace because the Lord God Almighty has ultimately and finally made all things right. And so the Sabbath was meant to point ultimately to the shalom of eternity. And this is what makes verse 27 one of the most profound statements of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Because when I, hanging on a cross, cry out in a loud voice, it is finished, God will be completely satisfied with my finished work. So much so that He will never have to tinker with it and add more righteousness to it. More importantly, my people can finally rest. Rest deeply spiritually. Friends, you do not have to add one thing to the finished work of Christ in order to rest assured in God's love. And it is a truth that your soul longs to believe and a truth that your soul must believe. Jesus moved Christ-centered worship from Sabbath to the, um, from Saturday to Resurrection Sunday. Which is why at Christ's prayers, if it's Sunday, we're having worship. We're having public worship. Because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And no pastor can declare a day a day of rest. Jesus has declared this day his day and he's declared it a day of rest why so that we would hear weekly God's consistent declaration I'm forever satisfied with the finished work of my son And when you understand that, friends, it not only changes your view of Sunday, it alters radically your view of every other day of the week. Here's a God who is a rest-giving God, and He sent Jesus to make that rest not only possible, but permanent. And so at this church, in this denomination, we have a high view of the Lord's day. Why do we have a high view of the Lord's day? Because it's a weekly, tangible reminder of God's goodness and His wisdom. Not only that you need to worship Him, but that you really can rest at a deep soul level in Him. Rest in the Christ of finished work. So you have Sabbath principle, Sabbath point. Now notice hard hearts, healed hands. Mark doesn't write his gospel in chronological order. He writes it in connection with certain themes. And so chapter 3 begins really with the fifth of five conflicts that Jesus has with these religious leaders. And to be sure, the Sabbath is kind of like the background. It's the canvas upon which Jesus will paint a picture of himself as the life-giving Lord. And here he is back in the Sabbath, back in the synagogue on the Sabbath, And he's there, according to Mark, while there's also a man in the room who has a withered hand. But you notice that Mark doesn't put the lens of his camera on Jesus, and he doesn't put the lens of the camera on the man with the withered hand. 
He puts it on those who are watching Jesus. Look at verse 2. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. In fact, the religious leaders are, are lying in wait, hoping to catch him in a snare. And, and, and in order to understand the, the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath and their attitude towards it, I would reference uh, Luke chapter 13. There's a certain synagogue ruler who berates a woman who's twisted. Her body is bent and broken. He berates her and says, you don't need to be healed on the Sabbath. Come back tomorrow. There's six other days when you can be healed. It won't surprise you, of course, as the Pharisees love to tinker with things. They took authority over medicine and healing on the Sabbath. It's regulated by all their religious tradition. It's commonly accepted in in their view that if somebody has an illness that is not life-threatening, then they should, in fact, wait for another day to be healed. More than that, they get to determine what's life-threatening and what extent somebody is getting healed. But to be very clear, when you look at this, you can tell that the religious leaders already know that Jesus has the capacity to heal. In fact, they've watched him long enough. He's not performing magic. He's not doing an optical illusion. And yet, because their hearts are so hard, they have not connected the dots that the Jesus who has the capacity to heal directly receives the power to heal from his Father in heaven, the God of creation. And so Jesus says, oh, a trap. Well, I'll jump right into it. The man with the withered hand isn't even seeking Jesus for healing. And Jesus says, come here. And then he turns to the religious leaders who are present. Verse 4, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. What's the answer to Jesus' question? The answer is, it's always lawful to do good especially on the Sabbath, and, and, and they're silent. And you would say, well, of course they're silent. They're so hard-hearted that they're more interested in setting a trap for Jesus than they are in extending compassion to a hurting person. To them, a withered hand, well, it's not life-threatening. You should really come back tomorrow, which is exactly the substance of what's so annoying when you read Luke 13. A woman twisted and bent, and to their chagrin, Jesus heals her on the Sabbath. But notice the heart of Christ. Look at verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored. The compassion of Christ contrasted with the hardness of the human heart. The fact is, if the Pharisees understood God's heart at all, they would understand that when God puts it in your hands to do good, to spare someone harm, when the Lord puts it in your hands to protect life, to spare someone embarrassment or pain or suffering or even death, and you turn a blind eye, Jesus would say, your heart is hard And that grieves me. If good can be done to the weak, it should just be done immediately. Because the rules surrounding all these moronic traditions, they turn a blind eye to the heart of God. They turn a blind eye to the compassion of Christ. Let me ask you a question. 
How much should they desire the healing of a man with a twisted and bent hand? A man who has lost the ability to earn a living, who has lost the ability to feed himself, who has lost the capacity to even be looked at with any dignity because in his culture, everybody looks at him and says, well, I wonder what he did in order to get a twisted hand. I wonder why God's punishing him and for what secret sin he is being punished. It's a guy who's been walking around with shame. They should desire his healing as much as if it was their own hand. As if they had been suffering for 30 years with the same condition. Jesus would say, if it was your hand, would you like me to wait till tomorrow? Friends, if you're a follower of the Christian gospel, you must look at the compassion of Christ and then you must examine the hardness of your own heart. Because the religious, tradition-loving, Pharisee, Christian among us does stuff like this. We turn a blind eye. Yeah, my friends pick on her, but it's because she's so weird. Yeah, and uh, I mean, yeah, we will, we do that in the locker room. I mean, we, the, the older guys, we're going to take the younger guy and we're going to hang him by his underwear in the locker. Uh, it's in order to make him tough. It's kind of one of our traditions. Many of you are no longer in the lunchroom, nor are you in the locker room. And yet there are opportunities all around you to do good instead of to do harm where you can save life where you can encourage someone else's thriving instead of killing them proverbially with your words with your brutally heavy hand with your cruel manipulation Jesus says, I desire that my people do good to those who are weak at the lunch table, at the youth group, at the fraternity house, in the sorority dorm, at your job, on the street corner, in your neighborhood, in your own house. Here's a call for you and I who belong to Christ, who embrace his gospel to be those who are life-giving as Jesus is a life-giver. There's a deeper spiritual point. The Sabbath was always about life. It was always about restoring the broken, the weak, the crushed. Yeah, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath because he's a rest-giver, but also because he's a life-giver giver. His healing of this man with a withered hand is but a small picture of his healing of your withered heart. And just like this man who didn't come to Jesus and say, hey, could you heal me, Jesus? You never came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, I think my, I think my heart's withered. I think my soul is empty. Could you heal me? No. Jesus came to you and said, hey, man, with a withered heart, I would be delighted to heal you. He called to you. And so from a soul healed by Christ, it changes how you view this day. 
and it changes how you view every other day. It's a day to celebrate a king who gave life to people who were dying. But the gospel also transforms how you view the other days of the week and how you view all the people that you encounter during your life. In a sense, from hands that have been healed. As one who has been granted eternal life, you become a a person who turns with those hands and can build a culture of life and thriving instead of hurting. Rest in the Christ of finished work. Sabbath principle, Sabbath point. Hard hearts, healed hands. Our third point is really also our conclusion. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Pharisees are the ultra-religious, and they join hands with the Herodians. That is the completely irreligious. Those who in that culture supported the cause of Herod the Great. Those who didn't want anything to disrupt the kingdoms of their world. Those who delighted in being oppressed by Rome so long as they could do morally whatever they wanted to do and you wouldn't ask them about it. They join hands to groups that have absolutely nothing in common decide we'll take religion over a redeemer. And so it is the religious who hate him because of his claims of being the Savior, as if I need a Savior. And the irreligious hate him for his claim as Lord, as if anyone can tell me how to live my life. And here's the fact. Jesus is still rejected on those exact same two grounds. The religions of the world and the kingdoms of the world continue to say, Keep working. Keep striving. Do better. You can't rest. It's not enough. You aren't good enough. Your work is insufficient. You are inadequate. And you hear the religion and you hear the kingdoms of the world. And everything in you is tempted to listen. And Christ says, come. Unto me, you weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You're here on the Lord's day to worship him because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is a rest-giving, life-giving redeemer. And so you and I can rest in the Christ of finished work. Let's pray. Lord, you promise in your word that when you send forth your word, it will never return void. And so we simply embrace that promise that you've made. We ask that you will cause your word to have its intended purpose. Not my purpose, but your purpose. That you would do in our hearts what you desire to do. That you would humble our arrogant places. And that you would strengthen our weak places. We ask that you would help us to see Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. It's in his name we pray. Amen.